Blog Talk Radio. My guest today is Martine Kalau, a proud American citizen, but she went through immigration hell to become such, seven years in deportation procedures, in extreme fear all that time of being deported to a country her mother had brought her out of at age four. She may be the epitome of what we call DACA today, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, people who, because they were children, made no choices about being here, but here they are. And what does our system do? It keeps them in perpetual fear, raised and educated in America, but living in constant fear of being removed and sent somewhere they have no memories of. The name of the book is Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. And for those of us who were born here and have been allowed to take our citizenship for granted, you might want to hear this story and how screwed up and sometimes evil our immigration system has become. Ms. Kalau, thank you so much for being here to share your story. Thank you so much, Anne. I'm, I'm really looking forward to sharing my story with you and, and the community. Why don't you uh, give us a brief overview of your book before we get into details? Yeah, absolutely. My book is entitled Illegal Among Us, A Stateless Woman's Quest for Citizenship. And it's, it's ultimately about how um, I, this young woman at once, uh, this young girl at once, went from being an undocumented immigrant, an orphan, a stateless individual for 11 years, and spent seven years in deportation proceedings, and then came out as a U.S. citizen um, with two advanced degrees and, you know, um, a plethora of work experience in the executive management uh, field in corporate America. And so, essentially, I talk about how I beat the system, the system, this immigration system in quagmire that uh, is not intended for people like myself to succeed. Um, it's intended for us to fail. So how did I beat the system? And I talked about the tools that I used, um, and I also talk about the people that were involved and how I drew in people to support me and invest in me and um, the, the emotional component of it, right, the mental health component that um, was, was exacerbated as a result of, um, you know, my immigration status or lack thereof. I know you went through some. You went through some really st- times. You, you, your family uh, b- before your your mother died, and, and well, after your mother died, yeah. the the family that 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 claimed you uh, just treated you like dirt. And uh, another thing we learned is that uh, doesn't sound like there's a heck of a lot of uh, uh, top notch immigration lawyers out there either. Right. So just yeah, I want to clarify a couple of things. I think it's so, you know, I I use this platform as an opportunity to educate people as much as possible about 
um, you know, the current immigration system and process and clarify the narrative that currently exists, right? So one of the things that you mentioned in my intro, which I thought was a fantastic intro, was that, you know, I'm an example uh, of, of DACA. Unfortunately, I'm an example of what happens if DACA doesn't exist or if we get rid of DACA, which is something that, you know, this current administration is sort of dangling like a carrot. I did not qualify for DACA. There are 2.9 million dreamers who do not qualify for DACA. So when you don't qualify for DACA, and it could be a number of reasons. It could be, for me, it was an age age issue. I missed DACA by like three months, right? I didn't qualify because I exceeded the age limit by three months. So when you have people like myself who are dreamers that came here, the average age of six years old, because that's the average age that dreamers come in, and they don't qualify, there isn't any kind of relief or anything that exists for them, and they don't qualify for DACA, 2.9 million. Well, many of them sit in this space, this limbo space forever, um, like myself. And the only reason that I came out of it was by a sheer fluke, right? And so that's one of the things I just wanted to point out and clarify. And then, you know, the other thing is, as you mentioned, yeah, um, I went through a series of um, abuses, living in abusive households, um, starting with the, you know, the household I lived in with my mother. I mean, she was um, verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive. And um, that's what my case was, was built upon and something that, and it, it was, it, it was built upon it even though I didn't want it to be. I felt like I was being exposed in this courtroom when I wasn't ready. And a lot of it is attributed to my lawyer and his malpractice and how he presented the case. And so to tie that back to what you also said is, yes, there are about 15,000 immigration attorneys currently in the United States. And I would say that there are some really reputable ones who really care and they are, um, you know, passionate about their case and their cause. And then there's another segment that is completely um, overwhelmed. They are, um, they, they might even feel jaded at some point, you know, because they have to deal with the current immigration courts, right? Um, and then there are others who are just completely exploiting um, individuals like myself who are desperate. And so the challenge uh, that, you know, the challenge that exists for people like myself, um, other immigrants or undocumented immigrants, is how do you figure out which one is which, right? And there isn't, when you're in this place of imminent danger and fear, there's very little time to make that distinction and learn to ask the right questions to qualify the right lawyer. And so that's one of the things I wanted to just clarify. Well, I kind of remember here. I've got in my notes here that that uh, you you pointed out one at one point that you had no right to select your own attorney. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, that's the other thing that yeah, I in in the story it's pretty convoluted. I went through six attorney, immigration attorneys in those seven years, and yes, um, what I learned is that certain immigration courts, depending on how the immigration judge, also otherwise known as an IJ, runs his or her court, could do whatever he wants, right? I mean, the immigration court falls under the attorney general, now William Barr. And so it operates very differently than, you know, 
you know, U.S. courts, so that it operates, it doesn't fall under the judicial system. So you don't have, um, you don't have a jury in the court. And many, many immigrants or undocumented immigrants who are in proceedings right now, um, they're not, they don't, they're not necessarily entitled to an, an attorney to represent them in their court hearings. And that's what's really scary about this. So imagine if you may not necessarily speak the English language to, um, you know, at the optimal level, you are, um, you're asked to appear in an immigration court and you don't have access to a lawyer, right, at all. I mean, that's the reality of many people. What do you do? Like you're standing before this judge on your own and there's no jury, there's no, there's no one else to who can stand up and support you, right? So these are things that are happening, and right now there are over 700,000 pending immigration cases. Um, and of those, I mean, there's, there's probably a significant you know, majority of individuals who don't have um, legal right to counsel in an immigration court. Uh, getting specifically to, to your case, uh, uh, it's kind of uh, because of because of what you I, I, you started your book. I think the first line was "I was subhuman." Yeah. yeah. And and uh, you, you know you 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 were uh, you 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 had you had suffered from a bad mother who beat you. You, you the, the entire rest of the family was cruel. You had incompetent lawyers. You were facing deportation all of the time, uh, and 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 I'm truly sorry for the abuse that, that you suffered. You said you were like a battered wife. Yeah, and, uh, I. Um, that's that's I, that's I just really, terrible. Yeah, I talk about that because you know one of the challenges then that I had with you know publishing this book was I was concerned by how the readers would perceive my mom I didn't want them to hate her because um, one of the things that I've learned throughout my journey and I had to in order to survive it all was forgiveness and understanding people not not from the perspective of who they were with me but from the perspective of just who they were as individuals as human beings and from their their place of hurt and it's very hard to get to that place right and so I didn't know, and I don't expect that everyone that's going to read this book is going to be able to read about, you know, the instances that I had where my mom was abusive towards me and then, you know, find the compassion that I found for her by the end of the story, right? Yeah, because you, did a, you did a nice it. job. You're a good writer, and you did a really nice job of, of circling back and and helping us all uh, understand uh, your your mother a little bit better. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, d- despite the the abuse that that you received from her, but it, it makes it kind of difficult. Uh, that kind yeah. of uh, background and upbringing makes it kind of difficult to stand there in an immigration court in front of a judge with your head held high. And, and, and this Impossible. Judge Colucci, this Judge Colucci guy sounds like a real piece of work. Is he still on the bench? Um, I think he is no longer on the bench. I think he retired. Um, and the interesting story behind that is um, when he was overseeing my case, we learned that he actually was asked from the Miami court. So the Miami court had him, and he was awful there. He had a reputation. I mean, 
Colucci is obviously not his real name, but um, he had a reputation in the Miami courts for doing that and treating immigrants and, you know, in the same way, in the same manner that he treated me. So he, they, they, instead of just barring him, I mean, this is how, how messed up, you know, uh, for lack of better terms, um, this, this immigration court system is that instead of just barring him, they just moved him to Buffalo, New York. So he could continue to quite honestly, like, you know, um, abuse, you know, verbally assault other people, other individuals. And that's exactly what he did. So how much of that goes on? I mean, it sounds like the Catholic church moving priests around. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, when, I mean, I think I talk about it and I definitely talk about it in the book where there's like every immigration judge has a different reputation, right? So that does happen. And the other part that I, I, I think is important for people to understand is that, you know, the attorney general appoints immigration judges now and they're given quotas. So a lot of it is out of their control too. I mean, they're just, they're just following orders. They're given a, a certain number of people that they have to reject and, and, you know, and make sure that these people get supported. Um, and many of these immigration judges now, I mean, there are about 378 immigration judges, 378 to 400. Um, but if you think about that in ratio to the number of pending immigration cases, that's really scary, right? You said 700,000. Yes, yeah, 700,000 pending. That's pending, right? So and 378 about judges. That. Yes. And now what's happening is that, you know, um, attorneys are being appointed to judges, attorneys who don't have background in immigration law. So they could be real estate attorneys. They could be attorneys in different areas of law who are appointed to immigration judges, right? And then they're given a quota. I mean, that's really what, what, what's happening these days. And as is a that, result Is that of, a recent change? This is no. This is this has been the case for a couple, a number of years. You know, since um, you know our last attorney general. I don't know what will happen with you know now that William Barr is the attorney general, but you know he's a hardliner on immigration, and he was he he had this similar position um, during the Bush administration. You know, the first Bush administration. So I don't see things changing. I see things staying the same, or it's not getting worse. And as a result of the government shutdown. You know, these pending court, court cases, immigration court cases, have actually been prolonged even further. Well, you've you, got you're, one you, layer compounding on another layer compounding on another layer. I mean, this is truly, you know, a, it's, it's a broken system. And that's really what I think is important for people to understand, taxpayers to understand. Well, you have a professional life, and, and you're 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 successful uh, successful professionally, et cetera. But you, but you still are active uh, in uh, on the immigration side, right? Absolutely. Um, everything that I do ties back to immigration. So you know, right now I am a consultant. I do um, organizational development <coughs> consultant, where companies have me come and lead trainings, professional development trainings. Um, or they invite me to conduct keynotes. And in that, I talk about, you know, the value of investing versus helping, and I use my own example, my own story to communicate that. Um, I work with, um, and, I, and I am invited to speak at a number of different nonprofit organizations that work with um, immigrants, whether they're asylees or refugees 
or undocumented immigrants. And then lastly, what I'm you know, really focused on as well is how I can help to influence a change with the immigration courts. So one of the things that I'm looking to do is, um, you know, be involved, see if there's, there's a way that we can start a task force. How can I get in front of William Barr? How can I be in communication with him or the head of, you know, the immigration court union and speak with that individual and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is the ramifications of what's going on. Things have to change. And so I'm very much involved, you know, in all those aspects. And Certainly, I advocate for, you know, um, anything related to immigration and the current, um, you know, challenges that immigrants have. And I think by sharing my story, um, I want to bring to light what's really going on and demystify um, what the media is portraying as the one narrative of the immigrant. Um, And so, you know, we've got this narrative, actually there are two, of whether you're subhuman, undocumented, undocumented immigrant or that you're the superhuman undocumented immigrant and so that's you know I was very um, deliberate in starting my my book with you know I was subhuman because I fell into that subhuman category and I wanted to explain um, how that what that felt like the journey of being a subhuman undocumented immigrant what it really what that experience really feels like um, from the perspective of that individual does the system take into account at all uh, your your uh, abilities, your accomplishments, et cetera? Um, yes and no. I think, you know, unless you're – and that's why I was saying that these two dichotomies are so important in this conversation of immigration as it stands now. Because if you're superhuman, right, and, and I would categorize that as that, you know, you're ma- you graduated magna cum laude – from you know your college, you're going to become a neurosurgeon, right? Then you're you're untouchable in in a lot of ways, and you know there's there's a level of sympathy for you. But otherwise, if you're not in that category, then you're subhuman and you don't deserve to be here. And so and that's everybody um, else. And yeah, that's every that's the majority of people, and it feels so unfair. I mean, we don't do that to the average American. So why are we doing that for? this group, particularly of dreamers who came here legally, the majority of dreamers come here legally. They come with their parents and they overstay their visas and they come here when they're two, the average age of four, uh, of six, excuse me. So they could come at two years old. They could come at a year old. They could come at four years old, but on average it's six, right? So what's the cutoff to be uh, eligible for DACA? The cutoff, it it depends. The age, it depends on the, the the time that you're applying, but you can't. You have to be um, under the age of 35, I, be, I believe, under the age of 35 to qualify. But what age do you um, have to be here in the country? Or when you came first to the country, you you said you missed something by three months. How how's that work? No, it, it was the age in which I applied. Right, so you're not applying for DACA when you're when you first come to the U.S. You apply for for DACA you know, when you're in college and, and because DACA oh. is just instated, not 
in during the um, Obama administration. So, and it, it's not a path to citizenship. It's just deferred action, making sure that you don't get deported, and it gives you some sort of access to apply to go to school and work temporarily. But it's not a path to citizenship. So, DACA was something that was instated, you know, during the you know the Obama administration as a temporary relief because the Dream Act was not something that was going to be passed by you know Congress. And so at that time they said, well, you have to be a certain age. And so I and many others, 2.9 million um, other dreamers didn't miss that age mark. And at that time it wasn't 35, it was a different age group. But some there's a cutoff. There was a cutoff and some people missed that cutoff and some people didn't. I see, like so a grace period. I think I was maybe, yeah, a grace period. Maybe I was, I can't remember if I was 20, I was 20 something, but I just remember thinking, oh, man, and my lawyer saying, well, you know, we can't apply for, for DACA for you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be eligible. Um, and this was my, my last, my final attorney who was, you know, a fantastic and amazing attorney um, that I, you know, just want to acknowledge and say that, you know, she is the reason that um, I, w- I am here today and she's the person that helped me amplify my voice after the first five attorneys, um, and particularly my very first attorney who I had for four years, um, you know, questioned, you know, um, my sanity and challenged me in a way that, you know, left me feeling bruised and hopeless. Well, I was going to say, let's let's talk about your, your personal story again in a little bit more because, uh, you know, wh- what everyone is hearing is a uh, well-balanced and self-confident person right now. But uh, I've got a quote here uh, that I took out of the book. I was like a shadow. People could see my silhouette, but no one actually saw me. And and you you spent, I don't know how long, it wasn't clear how long you spent uh, even uh, kind of haphazardly trying and definitely contemplating suicide several times. Yeah, absolutely. There, um, that's why I was really honest and raw about all of that um, throughout the book because I thought that, again, these are the other layers of this journey that no one sees, right? And um, talking about feeling like the shadow is because I was in hiding um while I was there, no one really, I couldn't allow people to know who I really was because I was in fear that um, people would turn me in. I didn't really have anyone to trust. And when, you know, there are different ways that we define ourselves in our existence, right? There's the social definers and our familial definers. The social definers are, you know, um, are ways in which we, we prove our existence by the state that we're connected to, right? Our social security numbers, our, you know, state ID, our citizenship. And um, familial is having a mom and a dad. But when you don't have any of those things, which I didn't have, I really actually did begin to feel like I didn't exist. And then when you have a system, an entire, you know, system that tells you that you don't exist, you in fact do not exist. We don't have laws written for people like you, like you're stateless. We don't know what to do with you. And then you have the court that's telling you that you are nobody, right? This immigration court that's telling you, well, what are you supposed to think? You then start to really believe that maybe I am a nobody. Maybe I don't exist. Like I have no way to prove 
that I am a person and I can't even tell anyone. So you are screaming on the inside, but on the outside you have to appear somewhat normal because you don't want to, you know, be told on. You don't want, yeah, you know, yeah. so that was that was ultimately this, you know, this internal conflict that I lived with for seven years, like this fear, mm-hmm. this imminent fear, like something, the shoe's always going to drop. I just didn't know when it was going to drop. Well, more than once, so I, I mm-hmm. yeah, more, more than once the, the, the thought came across me how, how much the rest of us, the born citizens, take all of this for granted. I, I, I grew up next to Beaver Cleaver, and Eddie Haskell was down around the corner. And, uh, you know, you, you just never have to even consider anything like this. So, so reading this, reading this story was, was, uh, oh my, quite an eye opener. And, 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 uh, there's been, there's been a lot to kind of be, uh, unhappy about being an American recently. And, uh, this, this didn't help much the way our system is, is so messed up, but let me move on uh, to the uh, the rest of the story. The book is is very interesting because it jumps back and forth in time, and I really like that and the mm-hmm. way you do it. And Thank one you. of the things that you keep jumping to is the fact that 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 one of the a totally unexpected thing happened during the course of all of this, and uh, through uh, what was a LinkedIn, your actual father in Africa found you and contacted you, and then you ended up taking a trip to uh, uh, Zambia and, uh, yeah, and, and yeah. meeting what sounded like uh, a, a, a crazy extended family. That's, that's an interesting part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to give the whole book away because I want readers to, 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 <laughs> to read it. I, I want to draw people in and read it and get excited about it. But, yeah, that was a definitely um, a, a pretty significant part of the book, um, and it was really about the journey in discovering my identity and the things that I found. I mean, I went there expecting one thing, and um, in the process of being there and whom I went with there with, you know, uh, the, the, the friend that I went with um, to Zambia, um, you know, discovering so much more, so many intricate layers of who I was, and then ultimately realizing that at the end of the day, I thought I was going back home, but realizing that U.S., the U.S. is my home. I mean, that was proof enough just by going to Zambia and um, acknowledging that, you know what, I can have two homes. I'm allowed to live at this intersection of being yeah, American but you wanted to come and also back being bad. African. I did. I did. I did. I mean, I wanted to in a lot of ways, but that was, it was for a number of different reasons. And I, and I urge readers to read it because there was so many, there's so this, you know, the, the whole conversation around identity is so complex, right? But yeah. um, what I also realized is, and, and through that journey was I, I'm allowed to be whatever I want to be and I'm going to embrace being African and being African, I'm going to, you know, define it the way I want to define it, right? Because I was born on the continent. So I get to be African and I also get to be American because I spent my life here and my existence is American and I'm proud to be American. So I am choosing to be both. And that was something that I was not allowed to be for many years. 
I was not allowed to be both. I wasn't allowed to live at the interse- intersection of being Zambian, Congolese, and American. I felt that I had to deny my 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 roots of being African in order to prove that I deserve to be American and in America. And so through that journey, I was allowed to do that, and I gave myself permission. And I think that was one, you know, powerful, um, you know, outcome from that journey. And then there were so many others that were are tied to my identity and my freedom. And so, um, yeah, I think you know when readers read it, they're gonna just it it will resonate with them in some way, shape, or form because all of us at some point have been challenged in terms of our identity and who are we like it's this existential you know journey that we have and for some of us it's part of i mean it's a question that has been dangled over us for most of our life and so that you know being able to answer that um was profound for me okay i i just have two questions left and one is yeah. i noticed that i noticed the book was dedicated to mutoto Yes. <laughs> did did what did it turn out to be a boy? No, it's actually it was a girl. Uh, <laughs> she was a girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can leave that as part of the mystery. <laughs> yes. So everyone my, was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and my other question is, uh, have you ever found your prince charming? Goodness, I have not found him yet. Maybe, I mean, it's, I'm always, you know, I am, you know, and I think this is something that's, that's so great about me and, you know, how I still have maintained a level of innocence and hope and I focus on the serendipity um, that exists and that can exist in life. Um, and so despite all the things I've been through, I still am always expecting the unexpected, the great things. And so, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of different people circling around my orbit right now, so I don't know one of them is my Prince Charming, and he could be. Um, but it's, it's all not, I can tell you, he's on his way. <laughs> all I can tell you is never stop believing. Thank you. Yeah, I will not. <laughs> It worked out pretty good for me because I never stopped believing. Well, uh, Martine, thanks for sharing your story and for the continuing work you're now doing on behalf of others who are facing the same madness you had to work through. You're absolutely welcome, and I thank you so much for having me on on your show. And um, thank you to all the readers who um, have read this book and who are um, considering and will read this book. I promise you it's, it's worth it. Okay, thanks. And it's also, um, I just wanted to say you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-R-T-I-N-E underscore K-A-L-A-W, and my book is also available on Amazon. I was just getting ready to tell him that. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks a lot. This is one of those must-reads for everyone. If you've had any curiosity about our immigration system, and uh, the current political environment almost necessitates it, you should pick up this book and see for yourself the horrors undocumented people are going through in this country. Find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere books are sold. The book is Illegal Among Us. The author is Martine Kalau. 
This has been the author's interview from Sunbury Press.